Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of Yella, the podcast of Jewish students brought to you by UJS. I'm Matty, your digital engagement sabbatical officer, and I'm so excited we are finally launching this podcast. This is our first episode recorded with Baroness Anderson. For a bit of context, this episode was recorded back in September, way before uh, the atrocious attacks of Hamas on the 7th of October, hence why it isn't mentioned. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to another episode of Yalla, the podcast of Jewish students brought to you by UJS. I'm Emmy and I'm the campaign SAB here at UJS. And I'm Daniel, I go to the University of Bristol and I'm the Vice President of Bristol JSOC. Today we've got a really exciting guest. Baroness Anderson of Stoke-on-Trent was first elected to Parliament in 2015 and she became a member of the House of Lords in 2022 and she's been at the forefront of fighting anti-Semitism in the Labour Party for many years. We're delighted to welcome Baroness Anderson to the podcast today to, to learn more about her various roles in Labour, student politics and anti-Semitism. Baroness Anderson, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you doing? Good. It's um, quite hot today as we're recording. Mm. We're um, in a very air-conditioned room, so I'm actually wearing a jumper and that's why <laughs> the difference in clothing <laughs> is so stark. Yeah, no, the UGS office is actually quite nice. Yeah. <laughs> I can confirm. <laughs> Excellent. I'm pleased someone feels cool and calm and collected. I can't <laughs> promise that that's what you're going to get from me. Well, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. Um, should we start at the beginning, I guess? Do you yes. want to tell us a bit about your childhood and like how you grew up, where you grew up? Uh, so um, my mum is spectacular and brilliant. Um, and I was a, um, I'm the only child and my mum was a single parent. So um just to completely confuse everybody, uh, because I definitely don't sound like it. I was born in Edinburgh um, and then uh, ended up in the East End of London when I was very little. Hence the accent. My parents, my grandparents are from the East End. Um, and then because of my mum's job, when we were when I was seven, we moved to Bristol. So to a very small Jewish community. Um, but the women in my life are the ones who are completely and totally extraordinary. So my grandmother, Nana, was... Um, will mean very little to some of you but to your parents it'll be a thing there used to be a kosher catering hall called uh, the royal majestic where everyone had their bar mitzvahs and um their weddings and my grandmother made the chicken soup for like everybody so there isn't all of your grandparents probably if they went to a wedding or a bar mitzvah in london until 2000 would have had my grandmother chicken soup and which I don't think many people can claim that her canadals were amazing um so um but we ended up in um, I spent most of my childhood in Bristol where there are two small Jewish communities um my mum wasn't going to sort of impose Judaism on me but at the age of 11 I decided to that I wanted to go to shul and I went to the liberal shul in Bristol and I was back mitzvahed and I taught at Haida and um, but there, it's a tiny little community. It's a wonderful yeah. community. So, um, and we had, you know, and then I um, went to university in Birmingham, and then you know, politics came. Oh, right. <laughs> so, so what was it like being a Jewish student at university? I mean, did you think it impacted you in any sort of way, or you know? No. So I started university in nineteen ninety seven. And I went, um, so I went to Birmingham. There was a big Jewish community, but I had come, I'd come from such a small Jewish community. I was the only Jewish um, kid at my secondary school. I had bizarrely had two Jewish teachers and one of them, their wives had taught me my uh, portion from my bat mitzvah. Oh, so it was all a bit, you know, it wasn't a huge community by any stretch. So when I arrived in Birmingham and there were Jews, I was a bit confused. Um, <laughs> and you know beyond my family um and then um what I found incredibly reassuring though was that um the rabbi would come and check on us every term and just to make sure I am I the, no one in my family had ever gone to university before this was a brand new thing um but the only thing my grandmother was aware of was UJS so <laughs> she the one that so she gave me money to join the JSOC like that was an incredibly important thing to her and when I went to this, does not sound good for Jay. I mean, I love UJS. <laughs> it would be bad first, if you didn't. I love UJS. I went to my first JSOC meeting and everyone already knew each other because, and I was like the only Jew from Bristol that had turned up. I think if I'd have gone to university in Bristol, it would have been different. But because I'd gone to Birmingham, 
and everyone knew each other and I knew nobody it was quite a thing and it wasn't the most welcoming of things so I didn't get involved in the community at university mm. when was and, it I'm oh, sorry carry on no, go on I say, when no. was it that you did start getting involved in the Jewish community? Uh, so I had been a feeder teacher until I was 18. Like yeah. I did all the way through and I, my synagogue was so, so lovely. Um, uh, and I kept, um, I tried to keep kosher for, I don't know, my, my household isn't, um, it doesn't keep, we never, we never had kept a kosher house and I tried to keep kosher kosher when I was at university, when I was sharing with non-Jews. I mean, that was fun for about an hour. But for <laughs> two terms, I tried really hard to keep kosher and really difficult. Um, so my Judaism has always been part of my identity, but not necessarily part of my politics, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it was like a personal identity, but, I would, but I'd go home for the high holy days and I would go to shul at home rather than um, stay out on campus. And then um, it was always, I was Jewish, but not Jewish. So I was, um, I suppose it was the political manifestation of my Judaism was in my anti-fascism. And I campaigned against the far right from like the age of 12. Um, I went on my first demonstration against um, the um, the National Front, had a demo in Bristol when I was 13. And I went, on the other side of the demo so like the the manifestation of my judaism was through my politics and mm-hmm. then um, but my anti-fascist politics rather than my labor politics and oh, i sure. campaigned for against the far right everywhere um and i suppose getting involved in the community i was sort of friends with lots of the political jews of my generation but i came at it from I was a Labour Party and trade union activist who happened to be Jewish. I wasn't a Jewish community activist. It, that changed when I became a member of Parliament, but I always happened to be Jewish. It was part of my identity, but not like first and foremost. Um, that changed slightly I, um, when I went to work at Bicom. So um, I became head of public affairs at Bicom in 2004. Hmm. Um, and... I was very young, I mean, very young. We're going to focus on the very, very young bit. <laughs> now, very young. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, that brought me into the community. Yeah, interesting. So sort of in terms of your career within Labour and as an MP, I mean, sort of what age did you start actively getting involved with the party and then the processes of being selected and how, how did it come about basically yeah oh so now I'm going to sound like a complete political geek right so yeah, it's um <laughs> my um my mum is brilliant and extraordinary and fabulous and um uh but she was also a trade union official so from um a very very young age like nine I had to submit an annual pay claim for my pocket money and I had to negotiate (laughs) my pocket money increases so um I um and you know like errands that you would always include in as a child the things that you're going to to earn your pocket money mine did include delivering my mum's labor party defaults which I did before I started secondary school and then Mm -hmm. in the 1992 by-election I uh, 1992 general election I was 12 um and I door knocked for the first time in the general election um so as, as 12 yeah wow yeah um so um i don't know i can't imagine what i said other than we're lovely and they're horrible <laughs> um but for those people who have not met me i'm nearly six foot so i was quite tall even at 12 so probably looked older so i've been campaigning for the labor party i've been door knocking for the labor party for 32 years wow um which does not make me feel young at all, but it does mean that there isn't sort of, so the Labour Party is, was sort of our political identity. And because my mum was a trade union official, even when I, you know, if I was sent home from school with a cold or I was ill, I would be at her, um, I'd go with her to work because there was that there was no other option. We lived in Bristol, my grandparents lived in London. Um, so I would be at the back of a trade union meeting in a, with a duvet and and orange juice probably and always food um always obviously but i bit back of political meetings even you know both going with her but also when i was little 
if I even if I was poorly so it was a normal thing for me to be sort of around the labor movement mm-hmm. um my just because you know my so my grandmother in um uh, was brought up in the east end my great grandparents came from eastern europe and they fled the pogroms so my grandmother was politically active and did things that she never wanted us to know so um in the run-up to the battle of cable street in 1936 that for those of you who are listening and don't know what that is but it's the um uh it was a big anti-fascist battle in the east end of london when the nazis wanted to walk through jewish areas my grandmother put razor blades in tomatoes for the 48 hours in the run-up to it to be used as weapons against the nazis um also in 1936 there there were yeah i mean my grandmother but she never wanted my mum and I to know because she didn't want us to get ideas. Right. Well, <laughs> you know, against Nazis. Uh, yeah. Um, she also, though, um, and I think that this is very much a woman thing. Sorry. But <laughs> in 1936, there was also the Jarrow March for Jobs. People in the Northeast marched from London, uh, marched to London to demand the right to work because unemployment was so high. And at that point, it was a walk. Like, that was a very, very long way to go. Um, and my grandmother um, knitted socks because she had appreciated as a working class woman that it wasn't just food that they were going to need when they got to central London. They would have walked through their socks as working class men. They would have walked through their socks. So my grandmother knitted socks in the run up to the Jarrow marches and arrived with food parcels and socks for them. And she was a normal working class woman, um, but understood her social responsibilities. And then my grandmother and then my mother you know that is the moral set that we were that my mum and I were given um by this extraordinary woman who made us do things and do you think it was these women in life these moral boundaries that made you want to become an MP yeah so when I was um so when I was very young my grandmother was um a very literate woman she was a very very bright woman and we lived on a council estate in the east end And my grandmother was probably, well, she was the most literate of all of her friendship group. So every Wednesday afternoon, the other older women on the council estate, who she had known her whole life, but whose husbands would have passed away, they brought their um, paperwork that they would have received over the week to my grandmother. And my grandmother would sit there and read their paperwork for them and ask them what they wanted to do, like read it out loud for them, and then would draft letters for them to go back to what needs to be done now that's almost a counsellor's surgery (laughs) but that was what my family did (laughs) and then my mum was a trade union officer my first job in the labour movement was being a trade union officer and I and I thought that was my dream job (laughs) but there's only so much that you can do until you change the law (laughs) so um and sometimes the law really needs change so you need people who can argue for that and that's why I became that's why I wanted to become an MP like I'd always been political but standing for election, I stood for election for the first time in 2010. Doing that was truly because the law needed changed and people who don't have as strong voices as us, who aren't as fortunate to know how the system works or who who candidly aren't as gobby, um, <laughs> getting them a place, being there for them, that's what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. And that's why I wanted to get elected. It was to be someone else's voice. Yeah. So, so you finally got elected in in 2015 I mean how did that feel um I mean you I guess you kind of only had well n- not long before then Corbyn was elected as leader but sort of how did you feel how did you feel about election? Because, oh, we're getting a bit of echo um yeah we are okay well how, how did you feel about the 2015 election in the sense that you know on a personal level it was a great success for you but um obviously uh at Miliband's didn't win um yeah (laughs) so it was heartbreaking because no one wants to be a politician in opposition (laughs) like you we we really you want to do these things because you want to make a difference there is a huge amount a backbench mp can do to support their um constituents but you can't change the law or if you can it's very small and it's you begging the government and finding the arguments that work with the government um so i was completely elated to have got elected um but knew that i had a hard slog in front of me and i also um 
thought that I needed to invest as much time as possible in my in my seat because by the time we got to the next general election which I thought was going to be in 2020 Mm. it was not um I would have um by the time we got to that point I would be um needed to go and support other people because I represented a seat that had always been labor turns Mm. out it was not always going to be labor um (laughs) but that was a whole different thing um so I arrived in Westminster I was genuinely excited um knew what I wanted to do knew how I was going to spend my time um joined Yvette Cooper's campaign team to be leader of the Labour Party and then Jeremy Corbyn happened in Mm. and my life changed beyond all recognition pretty quickly yeah yeah I think when did you realize that there was something fundamentally wrong was it as soon as he was elected or was it sign of something as soon as you were elected or was it more incremental than that um so there was a lot of pressure I was a brand new MP and there was a lot of pressure on who you were going to nominate as an you know there was a really powerful role of MPs to be gatekeepers for the leadership of their parties for both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party MPs are they get to decide what the shortlist is to go to the party membership. Um, I realised there was a huge problem or that was coming um, when we suddenly got all of these three pound members Mm. who were not invested in the future of my party. And by that point, I had been involved in my party. The Labour Party is me, right? This is, I've spent my, I've dedicated my life to the Labour Party and the Labour movement. It's like, who are these people who don't know where have they come from and what do they want? And Jeremy Corbyn had always been a challenging figure. So I I went with Yvette. There was a JLM Hustings for um, the leadership. And I went with Yvette. Um, Luciana went with Andy Burnham. Mm. And um, uh, Corbyn was there. And this was not a place where... Corbyn was a going to feel comfortable, but for you know John Landsman had taken Corbyn. That, and it became really clear that not only was he not comfortable in that group with those people, but that he funded here that his views on Israel were so visceral that it, that whether consciously or not, he really struggled in a room where people went to Israel. Candid, yeah. You know, even if I'm if I'm not even going to take it further than that, at that point, it was just our association with Israel was just too much for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, you just. But he was already doing really well. Mm. Um, and I was a brand new MP, and I was, um, I, my my constituency Labour Party chose not to nominate because it would be too divisive. Mm. Um. And that was like I'd been an MP for a month. Mm. But something news mm. about to happen then. This is odd. Um, and then I I was there for the leader for the result because I'd been part of um Yvette's team. So and I was an MP, so I was in the room when Corbyn, when it was confirmed that Corbyn was the leader. And I was sat next to Kate Osmore, and she was obviously completely over the moon because her candidate had won. And I, I couldn't stand up. I was sort of in shock. <laughs> and she sort of elbowed me. It's like because also the cameras were there, and it was the Labour Party, and we didn't know what was going to happen next. Um, and so she like elbowed. You have to stand up and clap. I was like, oh, sh- okay. And then it was like, I can't believe this has just happened. What is this? <laughs> um, but I was very proud to be part of Yvette's campaign team because Yvette was the only one, in my opinion, that tried to stand up against Corbyn. Can you just going back? Can you just briefly explain for those who may not be aware what JLM is? Okay, sorry. Yes, so um, the Jewish Labour movement used to be called Pole Zion. Um, has been um, was one of the original parts of the Labour Party. So the Labour Party is a broad synagogue, as we would now say, mm-hmm. but um, was founded by everyone says it's founded by the trade unions, and it was, but it was founded by the trade unions and the Methodist church and the Jewish community who all came together in sort of protest about what was happening in the community, uh, in society at that point. And um, Paul's eye on the Jewish labor movement um, was the earliest affiliate to the labor party to be a social, um, an affiliated socialist society. So it was 
a space for Jews to be Jews, but um, but with the view that we completely supported the Labour Party. Mm. But it was sort of a space for Jews to be Jews, and there's a um, there are other faith groups and other community groups that also have the similar so LGBT Labour. There's other groups as well that hold similar space in the party. Interesting. Um, so sort of on that, do you think that, I mean, this is going a bit further forward in time, but uh, in terms of Labour conference this year, which which I'll be going to, I'm very excited. Um, you know, do you think that JLM's role is going to be very different to how it has been in recent years? Because obviously, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not been... JLM's been on a journey and for yeah. what I love is that for I hope for a lot of people listening to this mm-hmm. you weren't aware of the detail of what was going on inside the Labour Party you just knew the Labour Party was bad and now please God you know the Labour Party is good and um, you get to decide how you want to vote not because you're scared of a political party but because of whether the political a political party matches your worldview like that should be that should always always have been the options available JLM was at the forefront led to the fight against Jeremy Corbyn and his anti-Semitism and the anti-Semitism of his friends within the Labour Party. Um, and he, um, and that put us in a very different, difficult place. So we um, voted not to disaffiliate, not to leave the Labour Party. We came close, but we did a vote of censure of Corbyn. We, as a group, decided that we would only campaign for um, well, as it turned out, basically, we were campaigning for me to try and get me re-elected. Mm-hmm. Um, but we would only campaign in certain areas to support candidates who were staunch JLM. Um, we did other campaign days, obviously, but, you know, mm-hmm. JLM, JLM, I will be forever grateful for every Jew around the country who came to campaign in Stoke-on-Trent, a place I don't think anyone had been to. There's like 15 Jews in Stoke-on-Trent, <laughs> which my mother and I are too. <laughs> And everyone came to try and help and brought me bagels, which was amazing because I needed them. Um, <laughs> but, um, and so JLM's role now is different. We've, we've worked really closely with Kia um, and Kia has been a mensch. Kia has done more than we asked of him at every opportunity to fix what was broken. Um, and our role now is, I think, I mean, there's a big conversation, but up until this point, the JLM events at conference for JLM, we were the vanguard of trying to fix the party or fight for the fight for the heart and soul of the Labour Party. JLM events became that place where people came to articulate that. Now there is a debate about what JLM looks like going forward. Um, We're part of the bridge to between the Labour Party and the community to say it's okay. Um, but also, I think, given what no, what happened to us should never have happened to us. Um, it is a huge cloud on the late on in the history of the Labour Party. It was a horrible, horrendous experience, truly life changing for me and for many others. And I think we now have a responsibility to be the people who act almost as the moral conscience of the Labour Party for not i don't think i I hope never happens to us again i don't believe it will happen to us again but we we were at the vanguard of an anti-racist fight we need to be that group to protect other people now and to call it out when we see it happening so kind of circling back to what you experienced as an mp under corbyn You've spoken and i think other mps have spoken that it was a very particularly kind of misogynistic form of anti-semitism um, and do you think that there are like perceptions and preconceptions that as Jewish women, like we have to deal with that perhaps Jewish men don't? So, yes. <laughs> and I think just, yes. And racism can and usually is gendered. And um, misogyny happens to women in, on a regular basis anyway, to women who are in the public eye. And then you add in any of our protected characteristics and that just makes it a billion times worse but what happened was uniquely awful for jewish women and 
And not least the fact that the four that there were four Jewish women in the Parliamentary Labour Party who were not going to be silenced. And we made that very, very, very clear. Um, and in different and, and all have different strengths and weaknesses, but as a collective force, I wouldn't mess with us. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, Luciana, Louise Elman, Margaret Hodge, and I. That's a formidable group of women. Um, and the only way they thought they could deal with us was to silence us and threaten us. And it was horrendous. And if I give you an example of quite how um, Mike Katz, who is the chair of the Jewish Labour Movement, he and I did a joint letter. I was parliamentary chair and he was chair. And it was another one of the myriad of letters that, was, that went over this period of time. But it was a public letter to Corbyn about... I know, someone that knew that needed to be thrown out of the Labour Party. And as I signed it off, it was quite a punchy letter. Most of our letters got punchier and punchier. As I signed it, um, Mike and well, Mike and I were in my office, and I was like, I'm so sorry, because your social media is about to look grim. And he went, no, it isn't. I was like, what, what do you mean? I'm going to get a death threat based on this. I know I'm going to get a death threat based on this. Mm-hmm. He was like, watch, I won't have a single piece of abuse. You'll get it all. Mm-hmm. And our names were literally on the same letter. Man. And it mm-hmm. was, it was, it was, and he was right. It was like, this is just extraordinary. They think that I can be silent. First of all, I was a member of parliament with parliamentary privilege. No one was going to silence me. And secondly, have you looked at anything I've said? Is there, do you think there's a chance that I'm going to be quiet? Because that doesn't seem to have happened this so far. But that was, um, so it was worse for the women. Um, and when hate is gendered it also then becomes sexualized and so the threats of violence become sexualized threats of violence as well as um other um so it's like it's a different approach and how did kind of having this as it were force against this racism this force of women how did your relationships with those women change and evolve during that time margaret hodge is like the best woman in the whole world (laughs) (laughs) like louise and luciana i knew well before but i didn't know margaret as well as i do now margaret i die in a ditch for margaret margaret is um i love margaret um she is warm and feisty and cannot be stopped she is a force of nature i love her so I mean, so I ended up closer than I realised. Mm. And obviously as well, Margaret and I ended up being the last two left. We mm. chose to stay and fight. There were there were no good, by the way, there were no good answers to yeah. what we needed to do. There wasn't a right or wrong decision. Um, but Margaret and I made the decision to stay. So it did end up as Margaret and I against the world. Um, Luciana and Louise made different decisions. And also they both represented the same city. Whereas Margaret and I, that was different. So we had sort of we had a different we had different experiences. Both um, my CV was incredibly supportive on the day that um, my constituency, on the day that there was a vote of no confidence passed in Luciana for her stance against Corbyn, my constituency Labour Party passed a unanimous vote of solidarity with me. So um, it was, I had a very, very different type of experience than Luciana. But, um, and in no small part, I had that because my extremely brilliant, wonderful mother moved to Stoke-on-Trent. So my mum got involved in the Labour Party and my my, uh, stepdad came out with me on every door knock because of the level of threat. My stepdad, who isn't Jewish, learnt Krav Maga. Wow. So... And was at, on every door knock I did. Because um, I was never, for three years, such was the level of threat, I wasn't ever allowed to be by myself. Wow. Um, not by myself in public. How do you cope with something like that? I've heard in interviews, Luciana said, Luciana Berger has mentioned that she watched Love Island and that was her mechanism of coping. So she'd switch off every night and watch Love Island. Did you have a Love Island, as it were? Um. Uh, I powered through with work, which just makes me sound really sad. <laughs> um, oh, this is going to sound. Um, I fell in love with Stephen Fry's voice. Mm. So, I, 
I went to bed every night listening to Harry Potter. I'm like, I was in my forties about Harry, but Stephen Fry's voice. It's probably the only thing that could get me to sleep at various points. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, um, and I spent a lot of, one of the things I found really difficult, it's not a bad thing at all, but I couldn't go out freely with my friends. So um, there was a lot of socializing was done in my house or in their houses because safety had become like I couldn't afford to be I couldn't afford to have like more than two drinks if I went out because I would therefore not be as safe as I would otherwise have been and getting home and all of those things so my I spent a lot of time with my close family and friends so my life changed you know so those things changed different like that became different um and Trying to think, did I probably definitely watch crap TV? Mm. But that would be like, but I just watched really crap TV. It wouldn't have even been as <laughs> highbrow as Love Island. It would have been really crap TV. <laughs> <laughs> Place in the sun, that kind of thing. Place, yeah. Or, um, uh, sorry, been like, all right. So I, I know I re, oh no, I know what I did. <laughs> so I rewatched on repeat the west wing because politics yes. could be better than this my favorite i love um, love i watched it during my final my university finals because it, <laughs> it would help me cope and just need it because it you know there is an alternative world where the world could look nicer than this um and um for my um so i was 40 in 2019 which means i know most of you were you know most of the people listening to this we're not going to talk about when you were born um but <laughs> Um, my 40th birthday party, I had a 1997 general election themed party. Things can only get better music. Things can only yeah. get better. We yeah. had it on um, and we had the 1997 election scrolling mm-hmm. all the way through. And Vernon Coker, who's one of my friends who got elected in 97, came and we stopped it at the moment that he got elected. So <laughs> like we did, we did like proper, there was party, there we, we had banners up we had everything was 97 themed all the music that was playing in the background as well was from 1997 so it was like we are yes because i need politics was can should and will be better than what we were experiencing at that point so i i kind of wanted to ask about 2019 the election um you you lost your seat and kind of how did you sort of deal with that how did you cope because that's quite a big and it's like you're being thrust into the unknown again, um, I guess. Uh, so losing your job on national television, probably not something many people experience. <laughs> um, so, but we, I knew from the moment the election was called, I knew my electorate. Like I knew from the moment my election was called, I wasn't going to win. Um, we didn't. Um, so we ran the, I mean, the, my election, the election campaign was brilliant. We had so much fun. Um, we're ignoring the result part of this but you know I had so much fun um we only had people come to campaign with us who shared our worldview so if they arrived and told me how brilliant Jeremy Corbyn was we told we asked them to leave and not come back um and it was because if I was going out I was going out on my terms and about the issues that I cared about we thought we had a, it was fun like we genuinely had a really fun five weeks knowing for what the result was going to be mm. um and so when the um uh gareth now who's now my partner but was the m wasn't then and was the mp for stoke on trent central he he loves account like loves relishes going to account it's his idea of heaven it's his christmas so he is there from one minute past 10 as soon as well in fact he's usually there for 10 to 10 so he can be there <laughs> as the votes arrive it's heaven for him um and i wouldn't I, i've never gone to account till i know what the result is when my name's mm. on the ballot paper um so but from the moment the um uh the exit poll was published we knew i'd lost like we knew i'd lost before but that confirmed it mm. and that was sort of empowering so it isn't it wasn't going to be close it wasn't going to be i knew i'd lost um i didn't know how awful Jonathan Gullis was going to be as a human being and as an MP, but I did know that I wasn't going to be their MP anymore. So as I did my hair, put some lipstick on, did what's got to be. As my mum would 
my mum would say tits out so <laughs> walked in and, and walked into the camp and there was a lot of media there because I had been so outspoken about Corbyn so um every media outlet was present um I walked straight into the media scrum and said who wants to interview me I've lost um it's not quite what I said but who wants to interview me <laughs> for the sake um, of this podcast that is what you said yeah. yes um there was some swearing there were bad words about Jeremy Corbyn and who'd like me to say them on national television <laughs> um and um and I did every and um, I did a series of interviews um called for Corbyn to resign immediately called him a racist no one would let me call him an anti-semite they sort of shut down the interview so the only entertainment the only place that would let me call him an anti-semite was the Guardian <laughs> yes really weird um and did what you do which is going to thank all the people that had got the election done and congratulated my opponent and did it properly and then went home and slept because it had been I had that no point allowed myself to breathe through what had happened when I was an MP, like to take time to reflect on it. So I took a little bit of time. It is a horrible thing to make your staff redundant in the run up to Christmas, and this and I had to do that. Um, and I was adamant I wasn't, and then I had to think about helping them get jobs as well as what I was going to do next, because as old as forty may sound to your listeners. It is very, very young to perform. Mm. My dream job that I thought I was going to have for the rest of my life, I now have to go and do something else. Um, and uh, and then COVID hit. So I was thinking about my future and looking for jobs when you weren't allowed to leave your home. So that was fun for <laughs> nobody. Um, <laughs> so, but I got an amazing job. And uh, so Trevor Phillips, who from Sky Fame, um, but Trevor is the chair of the charity that I am the chief executive of. And um, I, I run a charity called Index on Censorship, which um, publishes the work of political dissidents from Russia and Hong Kong and Afghanistan and Myanmar. And so we provide a platform, Belarus, we provide a platform to people whose voices are silenced by their own governments. Um, so it's a lovely job to get to do. It's a privilege to get to do that. And in the middle of COVID, bad leaders, dictators, tyrants used COVID as an excuse to shut down all media and to close newspapers and to shut public libraries forever. So, you know, we have work to do. And then you were made a baroness. <laughs> I was. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> Yeah. And how did that change? How have you found the difference? Firstly, how did it feel when you were made a baroness? What was that feeling like? Oh, I think it's the most ridiculous thing in the whole world. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was going into the second chamber and that's fine. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. But when I walked in and they called me a lady, it's like, oh my God, what is that? What? Like in a... <laughs> Uh, and now it's really funny. I did some media on, uh, I'll come back to what the, the Lords is like, but I did some media um, on the local election um, day in Stoke, which was, um, we had all our elections this year and the Labour Party took back control of the council for the first time in eight years. And my, um, as I'm walking into the count, my mum said, can I remind you, the King has made you a lady and you're going to do media, so you need to behave like one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So um, the Lord is an extraordinary place. I was terrified about going in. It's um, it had not been my aspiration. Um, the, um, but things happen in life, right? And it was going to. I mean, I think it is brilliant how many Jewish candidates the Labour Party's got at the next general election. Um, but they are Labour Party people who happen to be Jewish. I hope like they'll get to choose whether they want to be Jewish or not. But they just happen to be candidates. Because of the fights that Luciana, Louise, Margaret and I had, um, that my my abuse still continues for just being me. And that would have been very difficult to stand for election again. So Keir made a different decision for me, and that was very, very kind of him. Um, but I am the youngest woman 
on the Labour benches in the House of Lords. Um, the level of expertise. So I am. I'm, I'm now. I'm a whip now, and I'm a DEFRA spokesman and a defence spokesperson for the Labour Party. And I was in a defence debate yesterday, and there were five former chief of the defence staff spoke in the debate. So when you're going to talk about, you know, if you're going to, I um, I covered for someone and did a debate on um the future of the law officers, and eight King's Council spoke in the debate. And I was speaking on behalf of the Labour Front bench, and I am not a lawyer. Um, <laughs> I did politics and international relations at university. I am of no help whatsoever in this conversation. Um, and so you, the level of expertise in the House of Lords is pretty spectacular and extraordinary. In my first week as a member of the House of Lords, I heard the Archbishop of Canterbury give his lead his annual debate. He gets a debate that's his once a year. And he did it on the immoral nature of the government's immigration policy. This was in December last year. Um, I heard Lord Hall, who used to run the BBC, talk about the economic future of the BBC. And Robert Winston, Lord Winston, um, give what I can only describe as a reef lecture on um, genetic engineering, because there was an engineering, a genetic engineering bill going through Parliament. He was the only one who knew what any of it meant. Um, but this, and I'm still not sure I understand anything he said, but <laughs> I had a privilege of sitting there listening to an extraordinary brain. Mm. I've sat there and listened to Alf Dubbs talk about immigration. His kin, Alf was kinder transport. When he talks about unaccompanied children coming to the UK, he talks about it from a level of expertise that no one else in that room can talk about. You know, I sat in the um, international women's debate, day debate, and heard extraordinary women. You don't, I mean, I exclude myself from this, but you don't get to go in the House of Lords unless you've genuinely contributed something quite extraordinary. So the Bishop of London, who is a member of the House of Lords, she was the youngest ever government chief nurse in the UK. Wow. And then she became the first ever female Bishop of London. Incredible. Had worked her, so you... There are extraordinary people in that building whose contribution is just amazing. And you sort of sit there and go, I learn something new every time I sit in there. Mm. And the um and I don't know how you replicate that level of contribution in an elected chamber. Because the joy of the Lords to the Commons and have now having experience both is no one cares about a clip for Facebook. Like no one mentioned their constituency 12 times and cares about, if they don't, they have a level of expertise that they're going to share. They might only come in and talk about the issue of which they are a world leading expert on, but they are a world leading expert on it. So they might only come in twice a year, but when their subject matter is being discussed, they're going to be there. Um, And I just don't know how you replicate that. So you would then be against abolishing it because Labour's current policy is to in some capacity after the Brown Commission um to to abolish or replace or um well replace there needs to be a there needs to be a second chamber yeah um the the quality of legislation that comes from the commons is dreadful and someone needs to someone in the legislation needs scrutinized yeah the House of Lords is democratically unjustifiable it is amazing, but it is unjustifiable. And not least the fact that we have hereditary peers. Um, you can't, I can't justify it that someone's there because of who their parents are. Like, it is insane that that is the case. Um, and so there's a scope for huge reform. What I don't want, what I'd be nervous about is an elected second chamber that just led to more. I've never heard, I've knocked on tens, hundreds of thousands of doors. Like, I've, I door knock every week now, never mind when I was an MP. I've never heard anyone ask for more politicians. Like, <laughs> that is just not, that is not something I've, I think the electorate has ever asked for. <laughs> and um, how you balance it out and how we make sure, and if you're going to have an elected second chamber, how the Commons is still right now and we saw it with the um the elite um, the illegal immigration act as it now is the stop the boats bill 
we won the Lords. There were huge amendments put through, and we um, the government lost, kept losing every vote. But uh, we got to a point where people, um, where the Commons voice had to be heard, rightly because they're the elected house. But if I was also elected, and I fundamentally disagreed with something the Commons was doing. I would have exactly the same rights as a member of the Commons to say no. Mm. And I think that then you have, given that we don't have a written constitution, how you change things is going to have to be done very carefully. Mm. And I wouldn't want to lose some of the te- some of the contribution that the in that that some of the lawyers make or some of the you have lawyers that earn. Ten thousand pounds an hour. Like there are some people who are extraordinary, um, people who are up there, and they come in for the day to talk in a debate where they'll get paid three hundred quid, or three hundred forty-two pounds. They are doing their what they would consider to be their public service by helping make legislation better. I think we need to make sure we don't lose what is an extraordinary thing that we have and an asset that most people don't realise is there because we we need more elections. So there needs to be a level of democratic accountability without doubt. We need to reform hugely. Um but do we need to get rich? I don't know. We'll see what the we'll see what I mean my personal view is we don't. I think we can change this dramatically. One of the issues I have um I think some of the hereditaries are amazing and I work with them, but they're all men. So mm. it completely skews the diet by by definition they're all men. So it completely skews the um, nature of the house. They're also overwhelmingly Tory. Interesting. Yeah. So there's only three Labour hereditaries of mm. the 96. Wow. So it completely skews the numbers. Um, but anyway, without doubt, there will be reform. And then we'll see what the party come up with in terms of an alternative solution. But we shouldn't lose the flavour. Kind of broaden the question out to ask you a kind of more hypothetical, bigger question. Um, So for a lot of students, university is the first place they'll get involved in politics, in student politics, in, you know, conservative clubs, labour clubs, this sort of thing. But there seems to be a sort of gap. It's like people will be really involved in university and then don't become directly involved in politics until much later. There's a real sort of deficit of young people in the Commons as MPs. I think, do you think people like um, Keir Mather, who's the newly elected um, MP for um, <laughs> for Selby and Ainsley? So do you think people like Keir Mather, who's the newly elected MP for Selby and Ainsley, do you think he's an exception to the rule or do you think he's part of a new wave? I think, so I stood for election for the first time to go into Westminster in a target seat. So it was a seat that we were hoping to win. I hoped to be an MP. I got selected when I was 28. Um, if you think about um, Rachel Reeves is the same age as me got, and she got elected in that parliament when I didn't. She got elected in 2010. Um, so she she got elected when she was 30. So there is a group of if you look at the shadow, we're streeting turned 40 last year, this year. So there are a group of politicians who are very much young, who have a different, who are younger, who have a different approach. But Blair was really young when he got elected. Gordon Brown was really young when they got elected. Like there is not a, it's the right person for the right seat with the right view that can win over members and fundamentally you know when you look back on your own and all of you will it's like why did anyone let me do that when I was that young it was like what were they thinking Mm. actually because they see something in you that you don't see in yourself yet um and if you've got the confidence to grab onto that to hold on to that then you absolutely should and I think we've got to have a balance of world views and um of, of lived experiences so Absolutely, Nadia Wisham, who was a carer, um, absolutely has something to huge to contribute into Parliament, regardless of her politics. 
because that's a different what life view that she's a different lived experience that she's had I think one of the things that we need to do is ensure that there is a range of voices and of opinions and of personalities that come into our political space um what I don't want to do is people is that people don't want to contribute don't want to join because they think that it's horrible and it and yeah and I am not the great greatest role model for saying come and be an MP and it'll be loads of fun but it's such an honour and a privilege and I want hundreds of women to come behind me and become members of parliament because that is the only way that parliament changes and it's the only way the world changes for a better look how much has changed since women became MPs um and how much equality legislation has been passed since women became MPs and how the world has changed in no small part because women became MPs so I don't want the doors to be closed behind. I think that people, if they think they've got something to contribute, then they go and work for it. But that's the thing. You have to go and work for it. No one should assume they're going to get gifted something. They're not. You know, I was a very young parliamentary candidate, but I'd also, by that point, you know, 27, I've been campaigning for the Labour Party for 15 years. I mean, it's, um, I've been a member of the party. There wasn't anything I had, I hadn't done. I'd also run a, a national anti-fascism campaign like I'm not like I had campaigned against Nazis there are different things that different skills bring the only thing I would say the only caveat I think he's going to be an amazing MP and I think the people of Selby are really lucky to have him um the caveat I have is making sure you are people especially right now with the cost of living crisis and the world being as it is, people are going to come and see you when they are terrified and at their lowest ebb. And you have to have the confidence to know you can help them. Um, so there's a big part of that, that you need to make sure that you... Someone came to see me and they came to my office because I was the only woman in the city who was an elected, who was in a position of elected who'd been raped by her neighbour. And the police had got it wrong. And although they charged him they hadn't stopped him going back to her house, back to his house. So she was going to see him every day during, while waiting for the trial date. So we needed to move her because they weren't going to move him. And she'd come to me because I was a woman. Um, I think we just need to make sure that there are a range of voices that can be heard that can support people like her. Yeah. And how do we do that? How do we make sure that there are more women, that there are you know, people who represent people that aren't represented? So that, that's on us. That really is on us, right? So going out and I will mentor anybody that has aspiration. Um, but then there's also, so I was really lucky. There was a wonder, there is a wonderful man. His name's Ian Riley. And he, um, in 2007, I went and had coffee with him and said, I think I'd like to stand in a safe Tory seat at the next election to learn how it will work. And he went, oh, all right. And then about a month later, I got a phone call. I wasn't standing in a safe Tory seat. Would I um, Would I go to this place and have start having conversations here, please? And I think we need to do more of that. You see someone that you think is special? Well, let's see what we can do to help them. And we collectively can do that. There's nothing to stop us doing that. And for those of us who you know have grey hair, but very good hairdressers, um, we can help make sure that those people are mentored and have opportunities and engage um, I will do that always so moving from um Keir Maver to Keir Starmer <laughs> yep um you know what, what's your smooth very smooth, yeah. very very smooth lots of Keirs um I mean Keir Hardy as well but you know obviously not a present yeah anyway um so what, what's your relationship like with uh with Keir Starmer um yeah, and how how are you feeling about his leadership and the election? Oh, Keir's had a great week. For those of you who don't know what um, when we're recording, but this is uh, Keir's done the reshuffle this week and mm. um, has uh, strengthened his team and got ready for the general election campaign this week. Um, Keir is a really really good man, and he's a kind man. And his his personal value set is clear. He's also extraordinarily clever and typically unfazed by anything. Um, 
he and I became MPs in the same at the same time on the same day. So we were part of the 2015 intake. Um, and that he was serious. He is a serious man. This this is a man, and I am so grateful for it, who has never failed in his professional life. <laughs> um, he has succeeded, he is determined and has succeeded in things that he knows need to be done. Uh, you don't get to be director of public prosecutions at his age. You do not get to be caught. You do not get the uh, barrister of the year, the human rights lawyer of the year. You don't get any of those awards unless there is a huge amount about you. Um, and also, they don't make tell. So some of you may not realise, but um, it is speculated that uh, Bridget Jones's diary, Mr. Darcy, is based on Keir Starmer. No. Um, did you not know? No. That's a brilliant <laughs> yeah. fact. Um, so, um, yes, because of who he, because um, of he, he was the leading human rights lawyer at the time. Oh, so Colin was, Firth is really Keir Starmer. You conspiracy unlocked. It is. <laughs> yeah. Um, you heard it here. No, so look, but Keir is an amazing man. He also he could have talked the talk about anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Um, he didn't. The day he got elected, he called me, he called Margaret and prom and made promises to us about fixing it. He said it in his speech, and he and look. We were hurt. We'd been horribly, horribly hurt by the Labour Party and by people associated with the party at the time. And he under-promised, as it turned out, and over-delivered. And if he can do that for me, I know he'll do it for the country. This is a good thing. This is a really good thing. And for the first time since the 2010 general election, the Labour Party looked like they can form the next government. I'll take that every day of the week. Amazing. We have a couple of quick fire questions to end. Go. So, who's your biggest role model? My mother. Okay, so would you rather, would you rather never step foot in Westminster again or get elected as a Tory MP? Never step foot in Westminster again. Yeah, probably a good <laughs> answer. Um, what is your favourite reality TV show? Oh, I hate them. All of them. I completely, I find them completely cringeworthy um, in a, like, seeing other people, you know, I just, I, I really, I, it's not me. Um, Favourite Jewish food? Um, Chicken soup. And finally, Edward Isaacs or Joel Rosen? Joel Rosen, oh, both. <laughs> Always. I'm going to get in trouble. Oh, no, I'm not yeah. answering that question, I'm going to get in trouble. <laughs> yeah thank you so much for talking to us today um we've had an absolutely brilliant time and it was so lovely to hear all of your experiences um such incredible experiences that you've had um in your incredible career yeah no it's it's been an honor thank you very much it's been really great complete pleasure lovely to do it and good luck to everyone who's listening um so that was daniel and i speaking to baroness anderson she's quite a formidable woman i think yeah, i'd say i completely agree um, I think, you know, I think just all from, you know, personally, I think the way that she speaks about, you know, the women in her life and her family and like her Jewish roots as being like her constant companions throughout her life, I think was completely so interesting, I think, especially as um, she talks about her Judaism and it's her balance in saying her Judaism is important to her, but at the same time, like being an MP who happens to be Jewish. Yeah. I mean, I mean, also, you know, with everything that she's achieved, um, you know, even before the anti-Semitism stuff, she's just so impressive. Um, and like, you know, I, I, yeah, I think she's just such an amazing, um, role model for the Jewish community as well as as a leader that we can all look up to. Um, I agree because I think what I love is how relatable she is. Like, how many people do we know who do like politics and international relations at Birmingham? <laughs> like, <laughs> Anyone, yeah. anyone could be the next Ruth Smith, honestly. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, she was just really, really great. And she gave us such a great insight into into what she went through during the anti-Semitism <laughs> and to sort of deal with all of that. Um, and to, you know, um, with Margaret Hodge, um, Luciana and Louise, um, I think, you know, very, very few people could do deal with it as well as she did.
I need to I need to echo what she said about Margaret Hodge just being really cool. I went to um the reception of Lord Mann, who's the um parliamentary advisor on anti-Semitism. He did a launch and his report on anti-Semitism in higher education. And Margaret Hodge turned up. She was wearing um Nike Air Forces <laughs> with a green tick and a matching green blazer. Oh. Um she's she's nearly 80 and <laughs> and i just think that is such a slay thing yeah. to do <laughs> she, she's iconic she's she, so yeah. iconic um, um thank you so much yeah. for coming daniel well this thank was, you yeah. yeah it was really really great i enjoyed being in the nice air-conditioned uts office with <laughs> you know and a big thank you to matty as well for being here and um you know making sure that everything's okay um and thank you to you for listening and um, please stay tuned for more podcasts and keep update via our instagram facebook and twitter and we'll see you soon